0: Welcome everyone, Shabbat Shalom. Let's pray together before we begin our Torah study. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu, melech ha'olam, asher v'tzivanu Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We have a fascinating passage this week in the, in the Torah study, In our Torah reading, we we read about the building of the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and we also review the reason that God wants this tabernacle built, and it's because he says he wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell in our midst. He says, build for me a sanctuary, a holy place that's set aside for a specific purpose that I can dwell in your midst. And it's important for us to think about this, to think about God's motivation and his commitments. The the Torah reading starts in Exodus chapter 35, and we're just going to be looking at a variety of ideas that are in here. But I want to look at some things first that that lay a little bit of a foundation, and then I want to go into something that's a little bit unconventional, maybe in your thinking about God. So when we read about the tabernacle and we see all the details, we notice that, that God has a motivation for it. He wants to have fellowship with us. This is his idea. Build for me a sanctuary because I want to dwell within your midst. I want to be with you. And you know, the Lord, the Lord doesn't really need a house. I mean, how can the creator of the universe need a house? And he can't be confined confined to one place, even though he can be present in one place and still present anywhere else. He can be with you, Brenda, and he can be with you, Barbara, simultaneously. How can that be? He can be anywhere at any time simultaneously. That's part of the capability that our God has. But why build a house? Well, one reason is because God wants us to gather together for him, and we need to recognize that there are places that are set aside for him, where the real purpose is coming together in order to honor him. And when we built this sanctuary, Sandy's vision, really the vision proceeded from the scripture, the Lord spoke to her build for me a sanctuary that i may dwell in your midst so that was that was his purpose he wanted a place that would be a messianic sanctuary a messianic jewish synagogue and a sanctuary where we could gather together and not only could we gather together but our children could gather together and we could form memories of worshiping the lord and serving the lord and that this whole place would be a home place for the Lord, and for us as well. It's powerful, it's not, just, it's, it's not just to have a building. A building is good, but a building without a purpose is just an empty shell. And the building should never be confused with the people inside, or the purpose. But a building is at its best when the purpose of the building is clear, and when it's used for that purpose. So this is a sanctuary. This is a place that's set aside for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to be a house for God, a place where you and I and all of us together can come and we can turn our attention to the Lord and we can focus on the Lord. And why do we come here? It's because he wants to meet with us. He wants to dwell among us he wants to dwell within our midst. He wants to dwell with us. And so it's an interesting concept. Not only does he want to be, as we read in the sanctuary, he wants to be the Lord who's at the center, if you will, of Israel, the center of attention, he has the central place. And his house, his tabernacle, his sanctuary, is at the center of the camp of Israel, of ancient Israel. Not only that, but he wants to be with us individually too. And so he wants to not only be in a place, but he wants to be in your place. We're in your place. He wants to be in your heart. He wants to be in your mind. He wants to be within you. The idea that the Holy Spirit would come to you and dwell within you. This is so powerful. God not only can dwell in a house, he wants you to become a house for the Lord. He wants us to be, if you will, a house individually, a place where God can dwell, but he wants us to be a house corporately where we become living stones through the work of Messiah Yeshua, joined together, each one of us serving the Lord, each one of us filled with the Holy Spirit, but corporately creating a community where the Lord is welcome and he can come and others can come to find him. So the whole motivation is this. God wants to be with us. So when you're sitting next to someone, think about this. God wants to be with him. He wants to be with her. And look at that person and, and take a good look because God cares about that person, is interested in that person. You might be tired of them already. Sometimes, I mean, my wife is not tired of me, but I, sometimes I take up her seat space. You know what I mean, I mean, we got good-sized chairs here, but I like to sprawl a bit. And she likes to sit next to me. She doesn't want a chair between us. She likes to sit next to me, but there will be times where she'll give me that uh, spiritual elbow. You know, like, get back on your chair. You're on my chair. And we love to be together, but we appreciate each other. When you're here and you're sitting next to someone you love, it's, it's a wonderful experience, isn't it, to worship the Lord together with people you love? It's, it's such a joy. God wants to have fellowship with us. He wants us to get close to him. He wants us to get to know him better, and that's really the theme that I want to build on tonight. God wants us to get to know him better. Why would he want us to gather with him? Because he wants to be with us. Why does he want to be with us? He wants us to know him. He wants us to know each other. He wants us to be together. And so it raises a question. It's an important spiritual question. It's an important theological and philosophical question. And that is this. Is God knowable? Can he be known? Is he the unknowable God of the philosophers? Is he an abstraction who is like the transcendent, impersonal force? Is he just the prime mover who started everything and created thing and then stepped back and, and is like uh, the, the watchmaker who looks with admiration at his watch, but he's not in the watch and doesn't enter into the watch? Is he abstraction? Is Is he just that transcendent force we don't know how to describe? Well, the Torah says emphatically no. He may be transcendent, but he's not impersonal. He may be greater than the universe, but he comes into the universe to be with us. That is one of the most sublime messages of this Torah portion. God wants to be with us. He wants to come close enough to us that we can experience him. He's personal. He's not just the incomprehensible, unknowable God, but he's the God who can be known. And this, I think, is very important because if you know that, that God can be known, then you can read this week's Torah portion with fresh eyes and a different perspective. And so I want to challenge you to do that. I want you to think about this question. Can I know God? If the answer is yes, how can I know him? What can I know about him? And I want you to think about something. I want you to think about not the God of Shabbat and not the God of religious activities and not the God of... uh, Friday night and Saturday, and not the God who who loves worship music but doesn't know any other kind of music. But I want you to think about the God of Monday, and the God of Tuesday, and the God of Wednesday, and the God of Thursday, and the God of the middle of the night, and not just the God who's religious, because you probably have formed a... Uh, a mental picture or concept of God, here's my guess, that's a little more religious than he is. Now, God is spiritual. He's ethical. He's, he's creative. He's powerful. He's good. He is sovereign. All these things are true. He's a redeemer. How many of know that? How many know that he paid something that you couldn't pay? And if you got only justice, you'd all, your life would already be over. How many know that he rescued you from some of the consequences even? Some of the consequences, not all. I mean, some of the consequences we need to learn from. But aren't you glad that the God of Israel is not the God of karma? That he can redeem us and he can put an end to that endless cycle of sowing and reaping without redemption and without reconciliation. And aren't you glad that you're not in this insecure place of trying to win his approval as if you're on edge with him and he's an angry God ready to smite you unless you can figure out how to be a little bit better and good enough so that he won't do it. Aren't you glad you've been delivered from that way of understanding? But even so, I think it's easy to overfocus on the religious side of God, and I say that as a rabbi, <laughs> and to miss other aspects of God, and thus to be limited in your knowing of him. Now, if you want to know someone, think about what you can do to get closer to them or to know them better. Uh, how many guys are married here? I hope you have a clue how to answer that question. How? (laughs) Because if you don't, it will be, uh, it will give you an endless reason for needing marriage counseling. (laughs) But if you know, then you'll be able to do some things to know your wife better. Uh, Women, you can answer this honestly. Just don't do it out loud. (laughs) How many women married guys that didn't have a clue? I can say my wife did. I didn't have a clue about a lot of stuff. I didn't know how to buy her presents. I didn't pay attention to some of the things that she liked. Uh, I paid attention to what I thought she should like. And I can tell endless stories about that. I remember buying her a dishwasher for, uh, I think a birthday or something. That was so stupid. (laughs) I mean, she needed a dishwasher, we needed a dishwasher. I guess I needed a dishwasher, it made my life easier. But it's not a birthday present. You know, you give it, Give it on a non-birthday. Well, I was the kind of person who, uh, I had no sense of color, so I didn't know how to buy things for her that were the right color. And I'd buy things that would be good for somebody else and not for her. It took me a while to learn this. I thought she liked surprises more than anything else. I don't know why I thought that. She never told me that's what she liked. Uh, She's very gracious, but what she really likes is to get things she wants. I mean, do you ever get presents from people who don't have a clue? And you know their heart's right, but their knowledge is absolutely inadequate, and they just don't know. And then what do you do? You know, some people re-gift those things. It, that's a little bit awkward, especially if the person you re it to regifts it and it eventually comes back around either to you or the person you gave it, who gave it to you. That's, it's just an awkward situation. Some people have a policy, well, if I get a present that's not really right for me, I will keep it for a week or a month or I'll put it in the garage, but when the friend comes over, I'll bring it out. You know, there are a lot of coping mechanisms that we have. But what's what's the solution for all this? You get to know a person. You get to know what they like and what they're interested in, what what motivates them, and you take note of it and that shapes what you do. It's a beautiful and very different way of approaching things. In the same way, if you wanna get to know God, It's good to study the scriptures, very good. In fact, that's the foundation. And what I'm about to share with you comes from the study of scriptures, but it's not about religious stuff. It's about God's interests. So if you want to know God better, you should know more about his interests. And ask this question, what is he interested in? What, What is he expressing active interest in What is he thinking about? What does he value? If you want to know a person, you you can pay attention. What are they thinking about? What's their mind filled with? What do they daydream about? What do they dream about? What questions are they thinking about? What do they like to do? What do they do in their free time? What do they appreciate? Well, if you'll open up to Exodus chapter 35, I haven't really picked out any scriptures from this passage, because the whole, the whole reading speaks to something. And it speaks, starting in verse 4, it says, Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and he said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded, or this is the word, saying this, take from among you a terumah offering to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and all who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Then it goes into detail. And the more you read this Torah portion, the more details you will see. And you'll notice um, that there's very specific mention of color, of material, of design. Uh, The whole aesthetic side of the tabernacle is, is, uh, is expressed very clearly through this Torah reading. And so this teaches us something, that God is interested in beauty, that he's interested in design, he's interested in color. Now, this makes sense if you think about what is one of the most beautiful things that you can experience in your lifetime. A beautiful sunset, yes? A beautiful sunrise? Well, who makes those? The Lord. He did not create the world in drab black and white, or in some kind of monochromatic, dull version. The world is beautiful. And there are aspects of it that are, that are extraordinary. And when you think about that, it helps you understand who God is. God is a God who appreciates beauty. He recognizes beauty. He creates beauty, and he appreciates beauty. And in fact, in his house, you know what he wants? Beauty. He wants beauty. So he's telling Israel about it. He's color sensitive. How many here are color sensitive? Can I, can I see you've got a good sense of color? You know the names of color? I have a hard time. I mean, I know red, yellow, blue, green, stuff like that. But the other day I wore a shirt, and I wasn't sure what color it was. And different people were, you know, proposing, oh, it's raspberry. Uh, Others had different ideas of what it was. I still don't know what color it was. I just like the color of the shirt. So God is a God who appreciates beauty. He appreciates color. But he also appreciates skill. He recognizes skill. He talks about the skillful artisans like Bezalel and Ahaliyah and he distinguishes between them and the ones who don't have skill or are developing skill. He describes craftsmanship and excellence because he appreciates this. Now, what if you're a schlump as a person? You know, you just, you think good enough is good enough. And you think it doesn't really matter If I do it well, it doesn't matter if I put it in order, it doesn't matter if I try to make it beautiful. God doesn't care. Well, you're in the wrong world because in in God's world, there's a lot of beauty, in God's world, there's a lot of order. You know, there's order to the universe, that's part of the Genesis story of creation, that everything was made in an orderly way and set in place. It didn't just suddenly appear in full form, it emerged and it developed. And first there was day one, then there was day two and day three. And the sequence of those things is very, very important. Now something else we learn when we're reading in this week's Torah portion is that God is interested in mechanical things. And he describes like the method of attachment how is one thing attached to another? What are the devices that are made? He's interested in numbers. If you read this Torah portion, you'll notice that, that it's interesting to the Lord how, how long something is, how wide it is, and how wood, uh, I think there was one place where I was talking about wood planks that were maybe um, almost three feet wide and um, very long, and how they were joined together perfectly. Now, I'll ask you a question. Do you think that the Holy Spirit has inspired the Scriptures? How many agree with Paul that the Scriptures are God-breathed? Okay. In light of that, think of the implication. The Holy Spirit inspired these details to be included in the scriptures. Have you thought about that? That the Holy Spirit wanted to point out something to us, wanted to show us, if you're paying attention, that you can learn something about God, that God is interested in excellence, that he's interested in aesthetics. He's interested in art. How many of you are interested in opera? A few of you. You're well-cultured. I have a limited exposure to opera. Most of uh, my favorites come from Mr. Bean's Vacation. Uh, <laughs> I just happen to like that movie. With a little bit of opera in it. Um, <laughs> but God is interested in in beautiful sounds as well, in harmonies, in um, in symphonic performances. He's a God with great aesthetics. Now we also read in here that God is interested in attitudes. So he's aesthetic, he's concerned for beauty, but at the same time, he pays attention to the matters of the heart. He's concerned, what is the motivation of a person? You see, here in the scripture it says, the ones whose hearts were stirring them, whose hearts made them want to give. These are the ones to receive uh, contributions from for the house of the Lord. It's like that was an ingredient that he had in mind. He, he didn't just want money and stuff. He wanted it to be under the influence of a stirred heart so that when it was put to use, it had some sense of extra dimension to it. There was a good heart that was connected uh to all the material. So he's the God who examines the heart. He's the God who examines motivation. He's interested in expertise. He pays attention to who has skill, who has high skill, who has broad skill, who has the ability to do this kind of work. You know, sometimes in religious settings, you can see a gathering of kitsch, or schlock or religious sentimental drawings and artwork Jesus at the Wailing Wall (laughs) I'm sorry I mean I love Jesus I love Yeshua I love the Wailing Wall it's just that kind of art isn't my taste Um, because it's sort of like um overly representative in a way that the scriptures aren't. You know, we don't know anything about the physicality of Yeshua, uh, those qualities are left out. He's not described, which is appropriate given that he's out of night. However, he is a man, he comes as a man, we know that. But he was nothing special to look at, the scripture says. Even people turned their head away from him. So he was different than, say, King Saul, who was very tall and handsome, and, or King David, who, who had a ruddy complexion and uh, red hair, as I understand. Um, so art that goes further than it should maybe is not my taste. But there's another thing that we see in this. The Lord pays attention to who's interested in other people. And he calls out Beitzalel and Ohalev as an example because they have the ability to teach other people. Even though they are extraordinary artists who can do the work of artistry on their own and do it at the highest level, they have the ability to invest time and effort and training in other people so that those people can also rise up and do greater work than they could do on their own. We we learned that the Lord pays attention to people who want to pass on what they've received to others. And we see also in this passage, and you may not have noticed this, That God is interested in human resources, in management, in supervision. He pays attention to how to match the right people to the right job. Now, you might think, oh, God is just religious. Or he's he's just someone who wants to be worshipped. Well, he's much more than that. He's interested in all these different things and much more. I want to get into a few other details. He's interested in project management. How many of you are task-oriented people? You like to check off the things on your list. You like to accomplish things. How many of you are like type A personalities where it's a driving force in you? Some of you are even A squared. You are A to the ultimate, If you will. Sometimes in task orientation, people can forget the other people involved. I just want to get the job done. I I, I wasn't looking at you, Antonio. Uh, Maybe, (laughs) I wasn't singling anyone out. No, I wasn't even thinking. I was just like, how many can identify with that? It's like, I want to get the work done. And I'm looking for people to want to do the work. Sometimes when I'm writing an email, I don't want to have to chat before I get to the point. (laughs) How many can identify with that? You just want to be able to say, yes, no, maybe so. Or have you done it yet? Or can you send me this? And you don't have to ask about the cat and the dog and say all these nice things. Have a nice day, right? But God is interesting because he's task-oriented, but he's also people-oriented. He's interested in project management. He's interested in organizational development and organizations. Now, if you don't know that God is interested in these things, but your work and your life involves these things, then you will be trying to do things that you think God's not interested in. It's so different when you recognize God's interested in all this stuff and he has ideas, he has values, he has points of view, he has experience, and the scriptures reflect that. God is interested in culture. He's interested in fine art. He's interested in carpentry. He's interested in fine woodworking. If you read this Torah portion, you'll see that he's taking notice not just of rough carpentry, but fine woodworking that takes very careful work. He's even interested in joinery. He's interested in the art of measuring. Do you know this old carpenter's adage, measure twice, cut once? (coughs) He's interested in finishing details, getting them just so and the finishes in in color materials. He's also interested in something. I don't think I really took note of of this detail until I read this weekend, uh, for this weekend. He's interested in woven materials. And he specifies, like, I want fine linen over here. I want something woven out of goat hair over here. It was interesting to me because... Woven materials don't just materialize. You have to use uh, great ability to take the raw material and turn it into threads and yarns that can be woven together. You have to know how to use and skillfully use a loom in order to produce textiles. You have to be able to sew and uh, connect things together. For instance, you might think you know Rebetz and Ina, but if you don't know her experience in clothing design, for instance, then you don't really know her as well as you think you know her. If you know what someone has learned about and what they become good at and what they master, you know something more about it. Well, God's interested in woven materials. I found that interesting. He's interested in leather production. He's interested in architecture and in engineering. And all of this, I think, is is pretty clear when we're reading this passage, but you may not have noticed it. You may not have been thinking about this. Well, I want to add a few more things that are maybe beyond the passage, but here's one God is a foodie. Yes. I mean, the scripture is very clear about this. He's, he's a foodie in this sense. Uh, he knows excellence. He's part of the local food movement and the fresh source food movement. I'm being serious here. And he knows uh, the difference between good quality and excellent quality. I'll give an example. This is Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty himself will prepare a feast of rich food for all the nations, a banquet of aged wine, and the best of meats and the finest of wines. The best of meats. So, Lee, you know what the best of meats are. You've been to some fine, butcher shops in many different places. I know because he was at one recently and he told me all about it because he was taking notice of you know, the excellence and the quality. The Lord will be serving up a meal with the best meat. What do you think? Dry aged? Yeah. yeah. Prime? Yeah. Maybe better than prime. Maybe what we think of as the best isn't yet the best. Won't that be interesting? We'll sit down at a banquet and we'll start eating and we'll say, whoa, everything we ever had before seems like nothing compared to this food. Now, why is it in the scriptures Think about that. Why is it in the scriptures? So that we will notice it and think about it and pay attention to it and try to learn something from it. I didn't put these things in the scriptures. I'm only drawing them out and highlighting them because they're there. Are they superfluous? No. They reveal to us some things about God. He's a foodie. Here's here's another example. You can read about this in Uh, In the Gospels, one of the last things he did was cook breakfast for his disciples. Fresh fish on the grill. And he prepared breakfast for Peter and others at the Galilee after his resurrection. Isn't that interesting? Other ways we know he was a foodie. The way he handled bread was different than anyone else. There was something unusual about it. Do you remember when those disciples who met him, uh, you know, they they didn't recognize him and, and they thought he was like a yokel or something that he didn't even know what was going on in town and what had been happening. And they explained to him about Yeshua and what had happened. Not knowing that they're explaining to Yeshua about Yeshua. But there was a moment when he was talking to them and he broke bread. Could have been matzah at the time. Could have been bread, depending on the exact date. And afterwards they said, wow, didn't our hearts burn when he like, opened the scriptures to us? But when he broke bread, they recognized him. It's like, wait a minute, nobody breaks bread like that except Yeshua. Here's another example. He said that he came as one who waits on tables, as a waiter. He knew something about serving food and serving it well and doing it well. And he basically said, I'm so good at this, you should learn from me. And you should learn to serve each other the way I serve. I serve excellently, you should too. Here's another way that we know he was a foodie. What was the first public miracle that he did? He made water into wine. And how good was the wine? The best. Right. That's interesting, right? It wasn't Mad Dog 2020. (laughs) Everybody knew that you give the best stuff at the beginning and after people have drunk enough, then you bring out the cheaper stuff because they can't appreciate it. You know, they're like a little dull. Yeshua brought the best out at the end, right? And everybody took notes like, whoa, you, this is something. This is some kind of good wine. Not only was he able to distinguish and to create good wine. But if you read the scriptures with this perspective in mind, you'll see something. He really was uh, thorough in his interests, even about wine. How many times do you read in the scriptures about vineyards? Many, right? About how to take care of a vine, like the pruning, the fertilizing, the digging and so forth. You see a lot. Uh, Brenda is a master gardener. She can tell you a whole lot about gardening. Someone who's a master gardener not only appreciates the result, they know how to get it, and they understand it. So if you think of Yeshua as like a vintner and a vineyard master, the kind of guy who could plant a vineyard and raise it up and take care of it and produce the best out of it. He had interest in, uh, what is it called? Is it viticulture or a viniculture? In how you take care of vines. He was a creative type. He was also a communicator. The Lord likes to communicate. And he's interesting because he speaks but he also listens the lord listens to our prayers he hears us we're made in his image that's why he says listen israel so that we can listen to him but not only is he a god who speaks he's a god who listens and here's here's the last area god is literary he's interested in literature He's interested in good writing and good forms of writing. And if you study the scriptures, you'll notice, again, they're inspired by God. You agreed with that already. But they're inspired in all their various forms. In the prose, they're inspired in the prophecy, they're inspired in the poetry, they're inspired in the parables, they're inspired in the narrative, right? In all those ways... Because the Lord is a master communicator. He is the word. He speaks the word. He speaks and things come to pass. He calls what is not as though it were. And when he says something, it happens. I love this. If, if you're a lover of Bible translations, how many of you appreciate different Bible translations? Um, I remember when I first read Rotherham's emphasized Bible. And he captured in his translation something that most translators didn't because they were going for good English and he wasn't. He was trying to emphasize what the Hebrew said. And in Genesis, the Hebrew is very clear. It says, and God said, Yahihor, Vayehior. And we have it, and God said, uh, let there be light, and there was light. But Rotherham got it more uh, succinctly and powerfully. And God said, light be, and light was. That's how he renders it. I love that. That's faithful to the Hebrew. That's really how the Hebrew is reading. It's none of this, you know, King James, let there be lights. You know, let there be. You're like, uh, how does the creator of the universe say let there be? No, he says light be. And light was. That's the way the Hebrew says it. It's much more powerful, I think. It's also more interesting. So that phrase was inspired in the scriptures. The Lord, who's a master communicator, can speak in poetry. He can speak prosaically. He can speak fictionally and non-fictionally. Do you know Yeshua loved to teach using fictitious stories? He'd just make up stories that got right to the point that were so powerful. And he, he didn't always just appeal to rational facts organized in a logical way. He often spoke in a way that cut through the garbage that is in people's minds and penetrated their hearts and caused them to see something and understand something they wouldn't have understood otherwise. He's a master communicator. So that's really what I wanted to to bring to your attention, that when you're reading the Scriptures this weekend, when you're listening to the Torah reading and the Haftor and the Chadasha. Think about God in an expansive way. He is majestic. He is transcendent. He is beyond space and time. But he's also immensely interesting. And he's interested in things that you may not have realized he's interested in. So if you want to bring him a present, you need to know what he likes. If you want to have more fellowship with him, you have to know what he's interested in. If you want to grow to be more like him, you got to know what he is already. And when you do that, you can dedicate your interests. You may, if you've been here on Saturdays, you may be wondering, Rabbi, why are you praying for the kids to know the names of flowers? Or to like fruits and vegetables? Or to make sandwiches for their parents? It's because of all of this. So I'm I'm trying to stir you up to think about God not just inside the sanctuary, but think about him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Think about him at the dinner table. Think about him when you're grocery shopping. And pay attention to all the vast things he has interest in. And when you do that, you'll have a greater appreciation of the world you're living in. It will be more interesting to you. And you'll find God has more to say to you than you ever could have imagined. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the depth and the breadth of your interest. You are fascinating to us. Thank you for your word that's active and alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides between soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And it equips us for every good work. Let it be, Lord, as we're studying your word, that we learn about you, that we draw closer to you, and we learn to have fellowship with you, and we experience the fulfillment of what you promised through Jeremiah, that the new covenant would mean that we knew you intimately and personally, and not just abstractly and religiously. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, let's close with Aaron's blessing. If you're sitting by yourself, just move a little bit. Move far enough. Move far enough so that you're not by yourself. (laughs) The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you.